Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Cave Across Apologetics. I am Patrick. And I'm Tony. And uh, we're at the penultimate chapter in our book, Against All Oppositions, by the Greg Bonson, uh, put together by uh, our good friends over at uh, American Vision uh, with uh, uh, Gary DeMar. And um, and so we've, we've covered uh, a look at uh, why worldviews are important, uh, what leads up to them, what builds them up. Uh, we took a look at uh, kind of different um, quadrants of uh, where people fall within the context of uh, particular um, points of worldviews. Uh, we've uh, bashed uh, atheism quite a bit, and now uh, we're looking to bash other religions because, uh, believe it or not, <laughs> there are other belief systems in the world. And what about them? Uh, you know, uh, uh, can, can you have a, a justified true belief in Islam or in uh, Buddhism or uh, in uh, Native American spirituality, uh, whatever that might be. And so in mm. chapter 10, a quick course in comparative religion, uh, we're going to uh, look at, uh, is it possible for, for other religions to kind of make the same claim that Christians do uh, by saying, uh, we have the preconditions of intelligibility uh, founded in um, uh, the revelation of God, uh, which is found in the Bible. And uh, can can they make this uh, a similar claim by uh, pointing to their um, their religious books or to their religious uh, system? So, so this uh, will be a good chapter, especially um, especially if you're just kind of used to the uh, Abrahamic religions and, and interacting with them. Uh, this might provide uh, a, a different uh, avenue of uh, of looking at uh, maybe the the more Eastern religions that uh, that I don't think uh, at least Americans. Uh, have a full um, consideration for. All right, so uh, he talks about uh, at the very beginning in previous chapters, we talked about atheistic materialism, but that is not the only option out there. In many cases, the tools that he's given us uh, to deal with atheistic uh, materialism will also be helpful in doing apologetics with people who hold other worldviews. And he says, we'll continue with the same technique, but with different questions and different problems as we approach these other worldview options. Yeah, good. So um, first one, this first section, he, he's labeled um, believers in a non-physical realm. He says the atheist has a materialistic worldview, but now let's talk about any kind of philosophy that says, you know, we believe in mind and body. So this one is more than just the materialistic uh, worldview. This is uh, you know, dualism, you know, it's generally what we call this, where the if the uh, philosophy says we believe both mind and body, that is in the physical and the non-physical. So this worldview believes that there is not only, you know, just a physical universe, but also that there's a realm of ideas or a mental realm or a spiritual realm of some sort, not spiritual and religious sense, but in the sense of non-physical. So that's that's what we mean by dualism. So this world approaches it saying that there are two kind of um uh, ways that reality uh, is about, right? Physical and uh, non-physical. Right. And so we uh, once again return to our good friend Plato and his forms. And uh, uh, this is kind of uh, the, 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 the best laid um, avenue of that, of, of someone who, who has uh, an understanding, yes, there is a physical world, but there's also this kind of non-physical world where uh, certain ideas and forms kind of hold their place. And so uh, that's what we're going to talk about here. 
So uh, Plato did not believe that the physical world was ultimate reality. In fact, he thought that it was at best secondary reality, which on certain days I also think maybe that's, <laughs> that's a little bit more true uh, than what we want to believe as well. Uh, but the physical world is always changing and therefore it can't be the object of knowledge for whatever it is that we know it is unchanging, right? Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the thing that you call a plant is still a plant tomorrow. And so uh, for him, there's a sense of plantness that exists um, opposite of that plant that's currently dying and uh, shedding seeds. And changing. And, and right, changing. Exactly. Right. right. So as, you know, things are, you know, the flux, the flow, whatever, things are flowing and that sort of thing. And yeah. so he says, how can that be a basis of knowledge when everything is constantly changing? Right. So there must be something that's stable that allows us then to have to have knowledge. Right. I think uh, kind of the the quote that's most attributed to Plato that's probably in uh, every uh, graduation speech is the only thing consistent is change, and that's usually cited <laughs> to Plato. So, so he, here's 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 where it's from. Here here's here's how we we got that uh, ultimate quote. Uh, but the object of knowledge, Plato says, is not in flux. But since the the world is changing, then the ultimate object of knowledge cannot be in this world. It must be in another world, one that isn't changing. Uh, that uh, is kind of separated apart from time and space. Yeah, good. And so he says that we're going to move to on to refute Plato, but um, we need to be aware that there are many people who would not call themselves Platonists, right. but who have the same basic problem. Right? They want to say that there is a physical cosmos, matter and motion, but they also want to believe in something like love or justice or fair play. And so under the skin, he says, they are philosophical brothers to Plato. They are dualists. Plato says there's a realm of, or, of things like duckness or hoarseness or justice <laughs> and love and tri triangularity. Uh, there are these kind of perfect things that uh, if you were able to kind of go there, it would encapsulate everything that would be those things. So if you see a duck kind of in the world and he always gives us a, uh, Example of kind of Huey, Dewey, and Louie uh, out on the pond, uh, you know, they, they change, they might lose their feathers due to disease, uh, but there's still something that uh, is a touch point that we can say, oh, uh, this is, th these are ducks because of this uh, kind of idealized uh, 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 realm that we can, we can uh, point to. And so, in fact, everything that you think about, unless it's disreputable, like warts and other nasty things, uh, so kind of the, the good, the ideals um, uh, that, that we kind of, the, the virtues um, that, that we think about, it has a form in that realm, that other realm. But in this world, in space and time, we find particularly, like the three ducks, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, uh, out on the pond, particulars are in this world where universals then are in the, in the realm of this, the, this uh, forms and ideal. Right. So he makes this distinction, right, between, uh, you know, um, Things that are universals, like uh, duckness, right? So we look at it. How do we know that this yellow duck is like this white duck is like this black duck? How do, they're, they're different colors. They're not the exact same duck. How do we know they're all ducks? Well, he would argue that they partake of the form duckness, and therefore we capture that form in these particular, you know, individual ducks. So that's what he's what he's getting at. This, so this, the form this, doesn't yeah. change where the particulars do. 
this is the zoo that you want to visit because this would be the best representation you know so aliens abduct the the best of 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 the quality of each thing in the world and puts it in in a zoo this would be the one that you would want to go to because exactly. you look at it and say this is the perfect duck yeah, yeah. even though you can't see and you can't experience that particular realm <laughs> right. it'd be nice to go to that zoo. yeah Exactly. So, so yeah. So, how do we deal with this with this kind of approach, right? It's not just the physical world exists, like the materialist says. He, you know, this approach admits that there is a non-physical component of reality. So, how do we deal with it? Well, we go similar, right, back to the kinds of things that he's already talked to us about, right? The, the question of how do you know, right? He says, now, what question would you be inclined to ask, Plato? Uh, you always want to ask. How do you know, right? How does Plato know that there is another realm, especially, you know, since we can't even experience it's non-physical, right? So he says, in fact, Plato works right into the apologist's hands at this point because his answer, unlike uh, what other less uh, sophisticated people might say, would be, I've never seen that other realm because it's not open to the senses, but there must be such a realm. It's a rational necessity. So if there's no other realm like that, then we cannot make sense of our experience, right? And of course, that's the point, right? right. Uh, yeah, okay, fine. So if it doesn't exist, you can't make sense of your experience. Well, that's a problem. So you don't know, you're just assuming or you're saying it's a rational necessity based on uh, what, uh, how our experiences work is, is the way he would suggest the Platonist would answer this kind of how do you know that that world exists? Question. Right. Right. This this is the the guess and check. Uh, you 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 have one side of the equation, and you you really want the answer to be the other side of the equation, and so you you stick the the question mark in between, and and uh, you you make up your idealized world uh, there. All right. So the first person who uh, refuted Plato actually uh, was one of his best students, uh, which was Aristotle, and I always appreciated learning about this was that Aristotle was so antithetical to who Plato was, but viewed him as a great master and, and of uh, his teacher. And so it's, it was, it's really interesting to think today, uh, you, you wouldn't have this uh, dichotomy uh, between uh, kind of a, a, a teacher and a student. You would have, oh, this person is of, and you know we talk about it even within the scope of theology, oh, uh, these people, are are uh, you know Vantillians, and so they follow this right. one. But, so they follow exactly. Yeah, and and so uh, it's it's just an interesting uh, kind of point of view that uh, back in the day you could actually learn from from people who hold uh, uh, vastly different views from you and learn from them. So maybe the thing that helped build Western civilization, uh, we could maybe slightly return to that just a little bit. Uh, but his response, uh, Aristotle's response to Plato was along these lines. What good is an unchanging form outside of this world? We never encounter these forms, these ideas. So how can they help us explain anything? In particular, how can they explain one of the biggest issues, motion? The most pervasive characteristic of the world in which we live is motion. Things move, things bump into each other. Uh, uh, people experience uh, uh, that in the marketplace. Planets experience it uh, with asteroids. Uh, the, the, there's there's motion constantly happening. Even, even from uh, what we know from a cellular point of view is that 
those those atoms are constantly uh, in motion uh, um, uh, with each other. Even even the table, even the book that you're holding, uh, are are just uh, empty space that you're able to grab onto. Uh, but in the realm of ideas, you have these unchanging blocks, as it were, of triangularity, of love and justice. How do they help us explain what happens in this world, especially one of the biggest components, which is what we said, motion? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Bonson points out, Plato can't just say that there's another realm of ideas like justice and duckness and so forth. He must bring that realm of ideas into contact with the physical world in which we live. So, you know, the key here that Bonson wants us to see is then how do both of these various worlds um, meet, contact? How do they interact with each other? Now, Plato knew that this was a problem. And so when he was pushed on how the forms inform the physical world, he said he didn't know and had to resort to a myth, Bonson tells us, a story, you know, he didn't even believe was literally true, right? So, you know, it's kind of like this, but it's not exactly like this. Right? He says uh, that uh, Plato uh, said that the you know, Demiurge imposed the forms on the material world many years ago. So it's kind of like, you know, a, a cooker, cookie cutter type of analogy, right? How does the cookie, uh, how do they get to be the, the shape uh, of the uh, of ducks? Well, mom puts the cookie cutter, duck cookie cutter on the dough, and there you have ducks, right? right. So the cookie cutter, uh, you know, uh, analogy kind of is what uh, Plato is using, only it's not mom, it's the Demiurge here that's, that's doing that. Right. right. There's <laughs> you know? these, these kind of imaginary ropes of, of all ducks leading to this one duckness uh, form. And, uh, you know, it, it could lose a wing, but still that, that kind of string remains up to that that touch point or, or or something along those lines this uh this this demiurge uh kind of a uh almost trickster god uh is is the one uh manipulating of uh, these things and and uh making good cookies right so and so the key here is that really the idea that plato kind of gives up he doesn't know and so he kind of resorts to this kind of myth to try to help uh to explain it but he really doesn't know how his particular forms interact with the physical world, right? He just doesn't have have a really good explanation. Right. Yes. So the the greatest idealist uh, philosopher in the history of the Western thought didn't know how his forms and the particulars uh, in this world relate. But you cannot have a worldview that arbitrarily says it's kind of like different actors playing a single role, or it's like this demiurge uh, making cookies. Uh, there, there's there's got to be the more to the knowledge than just uh, I've, I've, I've made up a story. All right. Yeah. All right. So that's uh, kind of how he approaches this ideal of dualism. Right. And notice the key question that he's going to bring up over and over and, and, and over again is how do you know? And that's a key question that he wants us to to remember as we're approaching these various um uh, you know, worldviews that are different from Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, so he moves on now. Okay, we've talked about Plato. Well, what about his student, Aristotle? <laughs> he, doesn't get Aristotle. A, he doesn't get out of it as easily. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He has a worldview as well, right? Right. Now, what Aristotle does is he returns us to materialism is what uh, Bonson tells us. 
Aristotle realized that Plato's attempt to bring ideas or class concepts or laws into his explanation could not be justified. Uh, Plato could believe it, but, you know, he couldn't justify it and therefore he couldn't know it. And so, as you know, he's already told us in the previous chapter to know something, you know, to have knowledge, the definition of knowledge that he's using here is that we must have a justified true belief. Right. And so if we don't have a good justification for belief, even though it may be true or whatever, then we can't claim that it's knowledge. Right. And so Plato understood this. So, as Aristotle said, I don't care about anything that exists outside of space and time. The only thing that is going to be helpful to us are the things that do exist in space and time. Then, of course, we've returned to materialism through, though Aristotle was technically not an atheist, even so, his materialism is tantamount to atheism or the atomism, and you can start dealing with it along those lines and to see where we get issues with just a material world only. Um, we can look at the past uh, two episodes that we've, we've done there. All right. So, you know, we, uh, as he mentioned here, then we do the same kind of critique on Aristotle that we did to before uh, materialism in the previous chapters. Um, all right. So now let's move on to what we might call more specific religious type of worldviews. Right. Um, he says he's going to give us a quick course in comparative religion. That there are three basic kinds of religious philosophies. There he says there may be other ways of slicing the cake, but he thinks that this one is going to work for us. So first, there are religions of transcendent mysticism, right? Religions of this sort, he tells us, place an emphasis on what goes beyond man's experience. So these are transcendent religions, that is, they transcend our experience, and they are mystical in their outlook. So that's kind of the first uh, uh, example that he wants us to see, right, of the three. So they eventually, he says, give up rationality and say that what governs religion is some kind of internal intuition or enlightenment or experience. So that's the transcend, uh, you know, these religions transcend our immediate, and, uh, you know, existence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and makes it more, more personal there. Yeah, so the opposite that of that are religions of imminent moralism. In these religions, uh, it stresses uh, is not upon what transcends man's experience, but rather on what's near at hand, the imminent or close at hand, uh, the nearby. That's what imminent is. Like the end is near. It's very imminent. Some of these <laughs> religions are actually atheistic, like Buddhism. They reject any transcendent reality. But their stress, whether they are atheistic or not, is on a god or religious forces that are close at hand, not outside the cosmos that transcends. So we talk about transcendence, especially uh, in our last book, What About Evil? Uh, or uh, it, it, it doesn't go outside the cosmos and transcendence or outside our experience, but very much is a part of our experience. So it's, it's kind of a, a more tangible, um, uh, 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 innate knowledge that, uh, that, that you're doing. Yeah, good. And uh, so for that reason, he says these types of religions are moralistic rather than mystical, right? So they stress uh, inner, um, you know, instead of stressing whether inner enlightenment and intuition and irrational concepts or some form of mystical contact with God, they stress 
an ethical code that must be lived, you know, out in a person's life. So it remains to ask, he says, with regard to these kinds of approaches, what is the source of what constitutes their ethical code, right? And he says a good example of this is Confucianism. Confucianism involves the following, you know, following a particular teaching of the master, Confucius. And, um, you know, so we need to ask the question, well, what's the source of the master's teaching? That's right. the main issue here. Right. Right. Come from. right. And so if, if you've uh, kind of uh, been down the presuppositional route, uh, the, the areas that we tend to talk about uh, are the four that we've covered uh, in, in previous chapters is the ability to do science, uh, the, the ability to do logic, the inductive, the deductive, uh, the existence of the mind uh, rather than just the brain, and then uh, the, the um, uh, objective morality. And so uh, Christianity tends to want to focus on those four points of view because uh, from those four points of view, uh, we're able to establish uh, why they exist and uh, showing other areas uh, uh, or belief systems that don't don't hold to those factors in some way. And so going back to Nancy Piercy book, it's, it's the, the things outside the box that uh, we want to say, um, we want to say that they exist, but uh, because of our, our carrying out of our belief system, we want to keep out of. And so while there's these parts of reality that we have to either uh, uh, say don't exist, or we have to say that they're make-believe or, or, or something along those lines. And so yeah, uh, I think she she talks about reductionism. Yeah, right? that yeah. we and, reduce this to this, so it doesn't really exist. It can be reduced to this. So you know, the mind doesn't exist for the materialist. It's reduced to brain processes, kind of. Right, right. And so here, when we're asking about things uh, like uh, uh, Confucianism, uh, well, there's this guy named Confucius, and he says to live a moral life. And so if we follow him, then we're following Confucius. Okay, well, that might make you a good Confucius, Confucianist, uh, but we're wanting then to ask, well, why should we listen to Confucius? And so right. that, that, that's 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 this uh, this path that we're taking down that we've done uh, in in other videos and and uh, uh, other books as well of saying, mm -hmm. but why? And so uh, what we're talking about here are, are kind of uh, biblical counterfeits. Uh, there are other religions that are uh, biblical counterfeits. And uh, these are religions that have been influenced in one way or another by the Bible or are conceptually very much like the biblical approach to God, but are still counterfeits. Uh, they are have perverted the true revelation of God in some way. And there are kind of three subdivisions that we can look at in this category and that, uh, that are most helpful. They're polytheistic, they're either Unitarian, or they're pseudo-Messianic. So polytheistic. Unitarian or pseudo-Messianic. And so he wants to kind of work us through those particular approaches and then allow us to uh, critique those approaches using his uh, apologetic method. So first, uh, the polytheistic uh, approach, right? Poly means many. Theistic is God, so many gods. He says these religions have a biblical-like view of God, you know, that is their biblical-like, but they're not uh, at all the biblical view. Uh, but they've picked up some uh, things from the Bible, even though they believe that there are many gods. So 
the Mormons, for instance, is is an example that he uses here, right? They but talk you could about God. Put this one in, in either polytheistic or pseudo messianic, depending on, yeah, on, right, on, exactly. on on which which argument path you want to go to. But yes, <laughs> very polytheistic. Yeah, exactly. So the Mormons talk about God in ways that have connections with Christianity, and yet they believe that there are many gods. So that's why he kind of lumps that in here, right? The right. Polytheistic uh, view. Yeah, and in fact, probably even more so than than uh, uh, some of the Eastern religions uh, like uh, Hinduism. Um, the, the fact that there's one God that spawns off many other gods, but there's also many other gods before uh, uh, Jehovah who uh, spawns other gods and so on and so forth. So God's all the way up, <laughs> God's all the way down, well, uh, and, and uh, even in uh, different universes as well. All right, uh, so then there are the Unitarian biblical perspectives. So poly, one, uni, or uh, poly many uni is one so one trinitarian uh so this is uh focusing not on the trinity but on uh, uh the singularity of god and so this is uh, religions that have somewhat a biblical like view of god but do not believe in the trinity instead they believe there is only one person that is god islam is pretty much the biggest example of this uh and jehovah's witnesses are another uh all things are are, are i'm sorry all, all things are the Archangel Michael was created by Jehovah, and then from there, uh, uh, the Archangel Michael uh, creates all things and then uh, changes his form to be uh, Jesus. And so uh, he's a God, uh, but he's not the God, which is Jehovah. And so so he's just kind of this uh, demigod figure in Jehovah's Witnesses. So uh, ultimately, they're Unitarian as, as saying, oh, yes, uh, God has made all things uh, because he made the, the one being that makes all things. All other things so so god's kind of that first step for them so uh while we might think of them possibly being polytheistic because of of what they uh change in in john one of of uh, of being a god among other gods uh they're actually a uh, unitarian version of 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 this kind of belief system and then finally we have uh, pseudo messianic uh biblical counterfeits uh, they have false saviors. Uh, they are leaders whom they put in place of Jesus. Uh, one of the most notorious examples, uh, probably in more so in, in Bonson's day, uh, but uh, uh, probably probably littler uh, Jesus's these days. Um, uh, but one that he picks is uh, Sun 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 Moon Yun or Sun Yun Moon. I think that's it. Uh, who claimed to be the third Messiah and had a big big revival and uh, came from I believe <laughs> South Korea. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, I believe the uh, program Cultish uh, uh, from Apologia Church um, had a couple um, episodes uh, uh, that took a look at him. So um, if I yeah, this remember, this guy was I'll big into, into marriages and stuff. He would have these huge, like hundreds and hundreds of people getting married at, yeah. this, at the same time. And stuff. He was, yeah, he was a big marriage guy. <laughs> All right, so so he, what he does next then is kind of give us a summary, and then he's going to work through these various, uh, you know, religious type uh, worldviews, right? right? So he says that we have these different approaches to worldviews. Atheistic materialism says that there's only one kind of thing, and it's physical. Uh, Platonic dualism says that there are two kinds of things, you know, body and soul, ideas as well as the physical world. And, uh, and then he tells us now we have these religious worldviews of which there are three kinds. One that says, you know, the emphasis should be on what transcends man's experience. 
uh, ones that focus solely on man's experience and therefore on ethics, and one that in uh, some way uh, is kind of what he calls aping the Bible, right? Uh, and of these, there are three kinds, these kinds that kind of, you know, mimic the Bible, polytheistic, Unitarian, and pseudo-Messianic. Uh, and so what he's going to do now is just run through these three religious options, and uh, he's going to give us one example and show us how that we can, using his uh, his uh, methodology here, refute that particular approach. Right. Right. So this isn't kind of the one-stop shop. There's way more to talk about, uh, but he's uh, kind of given an example of, of where these uh, fail um, uh, uh, looking at uh, kind of a knowledge-based system. So, okay, Hinduism is the first one. Hinduism uh, is the outstanding example of the religion of transcendent mysticism in the history of the world. As we mentioned before, Hindus believe that the world is an illusion. Uh, we're all trying to get to nirvana, but we can get there only if we meditate and get off the wheel of life. And so that, that's the ultimate goal is uh, we want to be good humans because uh, we want to uh, stop uh, everything and live in perpetual bliss for forever. Uh, we've already discussed right. so this. We have this. So we have this samsara is what they call it, this circle of life where you're born and then you, you, know, you adhere to the dharma, which is the law that they have. And then you, um, you acquire either good karma or bad karma. And then based on that, it, it results in what your new birth will be. And the goal then is to try to get out of that, you know, samsara circle into nirvana nirvana right or uh, escape all of that particular circle right and and we see this play out within their society uh the caste system of india uh kind of uh, uh, uh models this because well you're poor because you're born poor because you've done uh harmful things in your past life and so uh maybe next time you uh, do better this one and maybe next <laughs> yeah. time you won't be so poor and and so uh that that, that kind of uh talks about um a uh, an expressed view of an internal belief system that uh, that um, is meted out. And so that's one of the things that as presuppositionalists we like to talk about is what from our, your belief system drives your action and does it account for it? Well, here they're adhering to their belief system. If you're poor, uh, that's a bad thing. And so uh, that clearly indicates that you've done the bad karma uh, run route, uh, the fallout three, uh, a video game that talks about good karma, bad karma, uh, for for uh, being mean or, or or carrying out the uh, the uh, objectives, um, and so uh, the caste system uh, is is that outward expression. All right, and and so uh, we've already discussed this, but let's review the Hare Krishna, though they uh, might not admit it, is really a variant of Hinduism, and the way that we approach the Hare Krishna falls in the previous chapter. It's the last video that we did uh, uh, last week for the short video. Uh, and uh, it's uh, also the way that we can uh, kind of refute the Hindu here. If there are no distinctions, if all is really is one, then on that worldview, I'm already in Nirvana because there's no distinction between being in Nirvana and not being in Nirvana, right? But if Nirvana is different from this world, then there must be distinctions. He must either give up Hare Krishna or Hinduism or give up logic. And uh, right. he said, if you're going to give up logic, at least be honest that you're going to give up logic. So those are your choices, right? All is one. Okay, well, then why am I worried about being in Nirvana? Because I'm already in it if all is one, right? right. And so uh, 
so you can't have it both ways, right? So either all is one, and therefore I'm already in nirvana, or there's a distinction, either or, and therefore, uh, you know, all isn't one. Right. And so, you know, you can't have all is one and all is not one at the same time. You have to give up logic if you're going to have that. So that's that's the main problem he suggests with Hinduism. Uh, what about Buddhism? That's what he uh, uh, moves to next, he says, right? To with These he calls uh, religions of imminent moralism. So not transcendent, not something other than us, but something with us, right? Imminent among us. So imminent moralism. And he says a leading example of religion of imminent moralism is uh, Buddhism. He says, according to Buddha, there's something wrong with humanity. So what's wrong with humanity? Well, suffering. There's lots of <laughs> suffering. And so where does the suffering come from? Well, Buddha has an answer. It comes from our desires, man's desires. So he said, uh, you know, Buddha said, if there weren't human desires, there wouldn't be any human suffering. And then he has an answer to that. We can eliminate the problem of, of uh, suffering by not desiring anything, right? This is kind of similar, uh, Bonson tells us, to stoicism, right? Right. We kind of get rid of these desires. So suffering will cease when desires cease. Uh, and so the goal is perfect kind of detachment from our desires. And, uh, and so we'll be perfectly detached from the world if we follow uh, what the Buddha called the Eightfold Path. And so if we follow these rules, do these things, these moralistic types of things that will then kind of detach us from the world of, uh, of suffering and move us then to, to where Buddha wants us. So you're saying the goal, my goal, my personal goal should be to form perfect attachment. So my desire should be to not have desires. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Right. I think I you got it. Desire <laughs> not to suffer. And so That's right. I need to be goal oriented in that's that. Right. And so if I'm being lazy, so then you, that's that that's a, that's a bad right. desire. So so you gotta yeah, you gotta have the desire to get rid of desire. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes. There's probably some Buddhistic retort to that of uh, I'm sure. I'm you, sure. You clear <laughs> clear your mind of that and, and, and once you get rid of that then then uh it's kinda like the one hand clap. Exactly. Yeah, there you <laughs> yeah. go. I'm a good Buddhist. <laughs> okay, so no, notice the moralistic cast of this religion. You must do this and not do that. You must be free from lust. You must use the right speech. Your conduct must be charitable. Don't kill anything. You must have the right kind of livelihood, one that promotes life. You must express the will to overcome evil. You must be aware that the body is loathsome. You must meditate correctly. How do you deal with a religion of imminent moralism is the question. Right. So, yeah. So he gives us basically the eightfold path here. Right. Right? These <laughs> are the things that we have to do. And so, yeah. So how do we deal with this kind of approach? Well, he says someone tells you, you know, if someone tells you that you really need to, you know, get into Zen. And so you say, okay, well, what do I do? Well, there are these things that you mustn't do. And there are these things that you must do, right? <laughs> like the eightfold path or whatever. And says, okay, so what are you going to say about that? Well, this is what you say. You say, who says so, right? <laughs> you know, if the answer is Buddha, well, then, the, you know, the Enlightenment one, uh, uh, you say, um, so we kind of already know the answer to this because Buddha didn't really agree with that answer, right? Buddha 
uh, said not to believe based on what he says, right? Uh, so why should we believe a Zen master? Buddha says, no, it shouldn't be believed based on, on what I say. According to Buddha, we're not, to, we're not supposed to believe any authorities. We're supposed to experience it, right? So that's so you they can't base it on because Buddha says, right? Because Buddha is saying, no, I'm I'm not that kind of authority. You have to experience it, is what Buddha suggested. Right. Right. But you know, Buddha didn't need a teacher to do it. So why why should you? So right now I am the perfect Buddhist because I'm not listening to Buddha. So good. good. I've, I'm, I'm trying to get them all covered. So start out Catholic, do do, do all your contristatory uh, uh, sacraments, and then um, move into Christianity one by one. I'll, I'll get there and have them all covered. All right, so uh, the Buddhist apologists are saying, okay, then you should believe it because you experience it. But if you haven't experienced it, well, then you should experience it. But why? That's what you're trying to find out. Why should you experience it? Maybe you wouldn't like it. But the problem mm. is not just that Buddhism is arbitrary. Do it because Buddha said it. After all, if a Buddhist said it, here's how you should live your life. You'd expect a Confucius to say, no, Confucius has said to do this. Who are you <laughs> going to follow? And then what about the Taoists? What about the Shintoists too? Where we start with imminent moralists, we have lost our religious authority and it becomes arbitrary. Right. So it's it's arbitrary. That's one of the things, right? You just kind of do whatever the, the authority says, but then which authority, right? Right. That's one problem. The other problem is that it's inconsistent, he tells us. It's full of internal uh, contradictions. For instance, Buddha says that man does not have a soul, right? Uh, so there is no soul in man. But notice this. We must be careful not to build up bad karma. Yeah. So Buddha believed in karma, that we could build up bad or good karma. But, but Buddha says that there was no soul. So how can there be bad karma if there's no soul that's going to be passed on? That's the problem, right? Right. And Buddha responds by taking the Platonic route of, you know, kind of appealing to a metaphor or a myth or something like that. And he tells us, you know, well, it's like the flickering candle that passes its flame to another candle. So that's what it is. We, <laughs> we don't really have souls, right? But we, you know, we kind of like a flickering candle. You light one candle, it flickers and lights the other and so on and so forth. It's kind of like that fire. Right. But does that flame then me? Well, no, it's not because there's no soul that's passed on. But I'm passing on my bad karma to somebody, right? Uh, <laughs> do you know what uh, that would lead me to do? Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow somebody else is going to pay that price. I don't care about what happens in the next life. The If my bad karma is going somewhere else, then what do I care about it being bad karma? So, yeah. And and, and uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses kind of have the same issue as well. Uh, they have a belief system that uh, that you're going to be completely destroyed, and the 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 form of you perf- perfected in the mind of God will be recreated. So that's why you should do good because this new being is going to rise up and, and, and be you, but that's not me. I, my, my soul, my soul isn't passed to that being. And so why should I, why should I care about anything? If, if the ultimate me isn't going to be the thing that uh, inhabits eternity with God in splendor after uh, all the bad people are raptured. 
Exactly. And so with the Buddhists, you can't have uh, karma and soul, right? Because uh, karma, done, if you don't have a soul, I'm sorry, you can't have karma and no soul. Because if karma is supposed to affect the soul, but you don't have a soul, then it's not affecting anyone, right? right. And so if, why, in, in the, as you pointed out here, the issue then is fine. Uh, I shouldn't worry about my karma if I don't have a soul because I'm not being, uh, I'm not the one that's coming back in, in the next life anyway. Somebody else is, right? Because I don't have a soul. So that's a huge inconsistency that he points out here. Uh, with regard to this particular approach, right? Now, he says all religions of imminent moralism run into this same kind of difficulty. They cannot give up first arbitrarily an authoritarian reason for living, right? The way that we're supposed to live, you're supposed to live, follow the Eightfold Path or whatever. Why? Well, because the leader says so, they can't give that up. Uh, so it's kind of arbitrary. And they also are involved in inconsistencies as well, right? Buddha says that you don't have a soul, but they say that karma attaches to something so that they can be passed on in the next life. Right. And so that's inconsistent, right? So there are problems there with that kind of imminent moralism. So we've looked at, uh, you know, this, uh, this transcendent, mystical transcendence type of perspective. We've looked at this imminent moralism. Next, what he wants us to take a look at is the biblical counterfeits uh, that uh, uh, that he just briefly introduced us to. And he says he will save that for the next chapter. Right. right? Oh, so next we'll one. have to wait for that. Right? Right. Exactly. And so that uh, that will be the, uh, the last chapter of our book. Um, is there another book that you want us to cover? Leave those in the comments below. After you click the like button and subscribe, hit the bell. Uh, all the things that you're supposed to say. And I, I guess when I watch YouTube videos and people say uh, hit the like button, I, I do try to, but uh, uh, you know, we're, we're just having fun. So if you're downloading this, if you're getting uh, 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 opening your book and, and, and reading it, uh, that's what uh, our ultimate desire is because we do have desires. Uh, and so we're, we're not trying to get off this wheel. Uh, we're just trying to uh, uh, live godly lives as the Bible instructs us. And that's, uh, that's our ultimate authority of, of, of where our desires should come from and uh, be conformed to. So um, join us next time as we finish up uh, against all oppositions and uh, conclude uh, the end of the year with, uh, with our book and uh, see where we go from there. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.